So not too long ago, I uh, went to Hawaii, and I brought a fly rod with me, because one of the places we were staying was on this huge saltwater flat. It's one of these places you'd walk out a quarter mile into the ocean. You'd only be up to your knees at low tide. And it's a great place, apparently, to, uh, to fish for bonefish, or oeel, as they call it. And uh, so I went to the local fly shop to get some bonefish flies, because I, I don't have any. And I went in, and I said, you know, can you re recommend some bonefish flies for me? And the guy at the fly shop looked at me. He said, do you have a guide? And I said, uh, no, I don't. He said, well, you have a much better chance of getting sunburned out there than catching a bonefish. I said, well, I've, you know, I, I went on YouTube and I saw some videos of people fishing for bonefish and some instructional, you know, so I have a, a general sense of, of what to look out for and how to do this. Uh, and he, didn't, he was not impressed with that. He said, guys like you, guys like, said, guys like you, get off the plane and you think you can catch our, our fish. He said, Make, he said, you can't. He said, maybe if we were on Christmas Island and there was bonefish jumping out of the water everywhere and I give you a handful of flies, maybe you could go out and uh, maybe you'd catch one then. But uh, this, is, this is very difficult. He said, these fish are smart. They've been fished hard before. And you're gonna, if you go out there and you spook a bonefish 40 miles an hour, it's gone into deep ocean. You'll never see that fish again. He said, everything has to be just perfect. He said, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to go out and you have to go right at the right point of the tide, right at the bottom of the low tide. And then you're going to, you have to spot the fish first. You don't just cast into the water. You've got to see the fish tailing up, and then you're going to cast to the fish. And when you cast, you can't cast to the fish because you'll scare it there too. So you've got to cast exactly six feet in front of the fish. And it's always breezy here on the flats. So you've got to make a perfect cast into the wind. So you've got to make a strong, perfect cast. You've got to be really good. And he just kind of looked at me. And I just looked back. He said, it's got to be perfect. He said, and then, when you make that perfect cast, your fly is going to sink down. And if the bonefish sees your fly, may come over and look at it, and they're smart. But that fish might eat your fly, and then you've got to set the hook at the right moment. How do you know? He's pointing at me. How do you know when to set your hook? I said, he said, you got to do it at the right moment. And he said, even if you do set the hook, you're never going to land that fish because you don't know how to fight it. They're way too strong. It's probably going to break your line. This guy was so discouraging and so pessimistic. I said, fine. I probably won't catch one of these fish. Would you please just sell me the flies? And so, to, you know, $20 to you. I'm in your store to buy something and you're giving me a product. This is how this works. And I get out of there. So no, the end, the end of the story is no, I didn't catch a bonefish in Hawaii. But I did see a lot of bonefish. I can talk later. But my sister-in-law, who lives on the island, she said, well, that man was trying to sell you guide service. She said, it would, culturally, it would have been pretentious for him to just offer me guide service. I feel like if I walk into your store and you offer to sell me something, that's sort of how it works. This guy was not a very good salesman, in my opinion, because culturally he made me feel like garbage, and he made me feel like I wanted to just quit and go home and not try this. Uh, this is why I tell you this story. Jesus' disciples, although they were fishermen, uh, that's not the point. Jesus' disciples, they followed him, 
They put their trust in him. They gave up everything to uh, put their faith in him. Jesus gave them an amazing task, an amazing new mission, that Jesus was ushering in a new kingdom of God through Jesus. He's through me. I'm ushering in God's kingdom. And I'm going to leave you, and you're going to be agents of that kingdom. You're going to take this message of God's grace and God's love, and you're going to bring it to the whole world, the ends of the earth. And you're not just going to be fishermen anymore. You're going to be fishers of men. You're going to proclaim this truth in ways that people will be compelled to respond, and they, they will come to understand and know the truth and the love of God. And he says, but let me give you some instructions. This is how this is going to go down. And in the con this is the context of what this passage that was just read for us. Jesus said, look, I'm leaving, but here's some instructions for how you guys can live this out. He said, uh, you, you can't go where I'm going right now, but there's a new command I give you. As excellently as I have loved you, now you have to love each other. And don't let your hearts be troubled. Okay? Don't be afraid. But the world will hate you. And in fact, people will even try to kill you or kill you and think they're doing it for God. But, but they won't be, and they're coming after you. But don't be afraid. And, oh, and if you believe in me, you're going to, these amazing things that I've been doing, you're going to do these amazing things and even more amazing things. And, and if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. You're going to be radically obedient to everything I've taught you. And you can imagine the disciples standing there, kind of like I stood in that fly shop, thinking, that sounds impossible. This is a huge task. Uh, Jesus, you basically laid out a plan that, is, uh, that I can't accomplish. But here's, here's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't just give them a plan. He gave them a guide. The guide, the advocate, the counselor, it's the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13 in your text here, on your bulletin. Verse 13, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. It's the Holy Spirit. See, you can't follow Jesus on your own. You can't do it. You can't read a book or watch a YouTube video on how to follow Jesus. You will inevitably fail. It's too hard. Because what's happening is you won't, on your own, be able to tell what is true and what is not true. What is the reality about God and his world and my life and what is lies about God's world and who he is and who you are. Apart from Jesus, what the world teaches and shows you about these things is wrong. But we're not left alone. We have the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 8, when the Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit's going to prove it to you and to the rest of the world what really is true. And I, I want to show you this morning what that truth is. And really, actually, I'm going to show you, I'm going to give a little diagnostic, really speak a lot of lies to you. I'll tell you before I do it. But I'm going to, things that we may believe that are true that just aren't. And we need God's Spirit to remind us again what is true. Because if you've been following Jesus, you have this guide, but we don't always rely on the guide. It's easy to fall back into these lies. If you're here this morning and you are, you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you would not consider yourself someone who has the Holy Spirit in them, for you, I just want you to consider what is it that you believe and how do you know that it's true? 
And, and how, does it how does this teaching challenge your thinking about who you are and who God is? And so that's what I want to do this morning. Let's pray as we approach this together. So Father God, if, if this is true, if what Jesus says is true, and Lord, I believe it's true, that means your Holy Spirit is here. And your Holy Spirit desires to guide us into what is absolutely true. So we pray humbly, Lord, that that would be. That by the power of your Spirit, you would come and fill us and empower us to know the truth. We pray that truth would be a truth that fills us up and frees us and empowers us to be your people, Lord. So that's our prayer. We give it to you. And we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so how did we get here this week talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we've been looking at what we call the Apostles' Creed. It's a very ancient creed, an ancient summary of faith of the Christian church. And we're just going through what are the core things that we believe and reground ourselves in these core truths, or let's explore them together. And today, the phrase that we're exploring is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Or sometimes we say, I believe in the Holy Ghost. It's just old-timey way to say Holy Spirit. And my goal this morning is not to describe all of who the Holy Spirit is and all of what the Holy Spirit does, uh, but what I want to do is focus in on what Jesus said one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is. And again, the key verse here is verse 13. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. But before we jump into it, I want to point out that it's He, the Advocate. This is a, the person of God, the Holy Spirit, not just some force that's out there, not it. Not Holy Spirit, it does this, Holy Spirit, it. It's Holy Spirit, He. This is the personal presence of God, God Himself living within the believer. A spiritual person, a spiritual counselor, a spiritual guide. So we're all, just think personhood as we consider this. But I want to focus on three things. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin, one, and about righteousness, two, and about judgment, third thing. First, the Holy Spirit will prove the world wrong in regard to sin because people do not believe in me, as verse 9 says. So we said the world is wrong. This is what the world teaches about sin. The world says sin is uh, bad behaviors. It's things that you do that are evil or wrong. And... But with that, the world also teaches, certainly today, that you kind of come up with that list yourself, what you think is right and wrong. And by people's own standards, they're usually doing pretty good. Therefore, you don't really need a Jesus. You don't need a Savior because I define what is evil and what is good, and I do what is good and evil, and I'm doing okay. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is holy and perfect. No blemish, no sin, can't even be in the presence of sin. And that every human being is completely corrupted by sin. Not just bad behaviors, certainly that. But beyond your bad or evil behaviors, it's, sin is a condition of the human heart that fails to love God with all of the heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if, if sin is a disease with deadly consequences, then it's, if it's, if it's a, pretend like it's a disease with little spots on your red spots. If sin is a deadly disease, you can see red spots. You are head to toe covered in the red spots. 
But people don't understand it that way. And people often ask me, they'll say, you know, does your church teach that such and such is a sin or not a sin? You know, what they're, what essentially what they're saying is, so this little spot right here, um, do you think this is sin or is it somebody was telling me this is really just part of my normal skin? And I say, well, that's an okay question, but that's not how I understand sin. Because even if that is just a freckle, look in the mirror, you are head to toe covered with the spots that we can all see. And I am covered head to toe. How are we going to deal with the rest of them? You're worried about the one freckle. I'm thinking there's a condition of the heart that is deadly. And so we don't teach that somebody's a little bit of a sinner and then somebody's a lot of a sinner, that we are completely corrupted by this. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, as Scripture teaches. And Jesus says that the role of the Holy Spirit is to prove the world wrong with this. And he's saying it's because people don't believe in me. People don't believe that they actually need a Savior. Jesus said, you have no other hope. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only hope. Apart from Jesus, you are sick and dying in a state of death, and you are not okay. And Jesus says, I'm the only way. That's the lie of the world, that you're okay. That you're not that bad off. But the reality is, we do this too. We minimize the sin in our lives. We feel like, oh, I'm not that bad. I'm actually okay. So the question is, do you minimize sin in your life? And I've got a little, I've got a little diagnostic tool here, right here. There's a list. This is from a book called The Gospel-Centered Life I've mentioned before. Uh, it's a good book. All right, six ways of minimizing sin. Do any of these resonate with you? Uh, defending. I find it difficult to receive feedback about weaknesses or sin. When confronted, my tendency is to explain things away, talk about my successes, or justify my decisions as a result. People are hesitant to approach me, and I rarely have conversations about difficult things in my life. Faking. I strive to keep up appearances and maintain a respectable image. My behavior to some degree is driven by what others think of me, and as a result, not many people know the real me. That's another way of minimizing sin. Hiding. I tend to conceal as much as I can about my life, especially the bad stuff. This is different from faking in that faking is about impressing. Hiding is more about shame. I don't think people will love or accept the real me. Another, exaggerating. I tend to think and talk more highly about myself than I ought to. Blaming. I'm quick to blame others for sin or circumstances. I have a difficult time owning my contribution to sin or to conflict. There's an element of pride that assumes that it's not my fault, or that an element of fear of rejection that if it is my fault. Lastly, downplaying. I tend to give little weight to sin or circumstances in my life as if they're normal or not that bad. And as a result, things often don't get the attention they deserve. There's, there's all kinds of ways we can minimize sin. You could probably add to that list. I could certainly add to that list. But the role of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of the truth of sinfulness. And that, when I say that, that doesn't sound like something I want. It doesn't sound helpful to me. 
But here's the deal. If I believe that I'm a little bit sinful, and that Jesus dies on a cross, he takes a punishment for me, and he died for some of my sin, or you know, the really bad things I've done, you know, when I was a teenager or when I was in college, and Jesus died for that really bad stuff, then I'll be grateful. I'll be pretty grateful for that. But if I believe that I am shot through with sin, top to bottom, that I am completely covered, then I realize how forgiven I am, that what Jesus did on the cross was not just a little bit good, but amazingly good and something that I could never accomplish, then my love and appreciation for him grows and grows as I come in tune with my own sin and brokenness. That I am love beyond belief. Therefore, I need the Holy Spirit to guide me into the truth about my sin. I, I want it. And the Spirit is gracious to do this for us. First thing, proving, proving, you're speaking the truth about sin to us. Second, the Holy Spirit will prove the world wrong, verse 10, in regard to righteousness. Because I am going to the Father, Jesus says, where you can see me no longer. So we ask, well, how is the world, how is the world, apart from Jesus, wrong about righteousness? Well, it's the same thing. The same way that we love to minimize our sin, we love to amplify our goodness and our righteousness. We love to think highly about how good we are. The problem is, Scripture teaches that your righteous acts are like filthy rags, Isaiah 64. The Apostle Paul, thinking about his own righteousness, he was a very religious, good person, Philippians chapter 3, he says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. I consider all that trash that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, or religious obedience, but that which is found through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Saying, look, all of the righteous things I do aren't going to measure up to God's standard. The only hope I have is to claim a righteousness that was given to me freely. And Jesus' role when he came was to expose the hollowness of, of righteousness, good sort of self-righteousness. And Jesus came as a light to show where darkness was in the world. So Jesus came to some of the most religious places in the world. He went to the temple where the people were supposed to be worshiping. And he goes in there and he starts flipping over tables and he has to cleanse it out. He said, you've turned this into something ugly and distorted and not what it was meant to be. And he was constantly in conflict with the most religious and righteous people, the group called the Pharisees, that they were very intentional of doing everything right and following every law. And Jesus is telling them, this is hollow, this is empty, your righteousness, there's nothing there. And now Jesus is gone, and he's going to the Father, now it's the role of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's job to do that same thing, to expose uh, the emptiness of, of human righteousness, and to... It, show the truth of how we need Jesus' righteousness. Because the only righteousness that is going to count for anything is Jesus' righteousness. Let me explain it like this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, that's Jesus, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
What God has done is he's set up a great exchange where he takes and cleanses all of our sin and he gives us the righteous record of Jesus. That's the righteousness we claim. But sometimes we drift from that. We claim other righteousness of ourselves. And here, So I've got another list. I love lists. All right, here's some false righteousness. Same book here. Ways that we, other than claiming the righteousness of Jesus, claim righteousness for ourselves. There's job righteousness. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. Family righteousness. Because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Theological righteousness. I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Intellectual righteousness. I'm better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. You getting the smugness of this? Okay. Schedule righteousness. I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. Or flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way that everyone else should. Legalistic righteousness. I don't drink or smoke or chew or date girls that do those things. Too many Christians aren't concerned about holiness these days. Financial righteousness. I manage my money wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Political righteousness. Well, if you really love God, you'll vote for... Name the candidate. I read an article that said, if you really love God, you just won't vote. But, uh, tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in this way. Those are a few examples. You can think of others. But, but my point is this, that we can easily, and especially as we are being transformed and made new, and, and we, are, we are becoming more victorious over sin, we can start to think, I am doing pretty good. I am better than people who aren't doing quite as good as me. And you see the consequence of that, right? Smugness, judgmentalism, superiority. The Holy Spirit's job is to guide you into the truth about righteousness. Essentially, that my only identity needs to be in Jesus' righteousness. I am not superior to anyone else in that respect. I can live a life of true humility and freedom. Freedom from being judgmental and freedom from having to just keep up the appearances. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit proves the world wrong. So in regard to sin, in regard to righteousness, now in regard to judgment, verse 11. The Holy Spirit will prove the world wrong in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The prince of this world, that's just Satan. Saying Satan, the enemy, is a liar and a father and the father of lies. But Satan, Satan now stands condemned by Jesus 
Because of the resurrection. The resurrection proves that sin and lies and death do not win. That Jesus is victorious and Satan is crushed. So Satan now stands condemned. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to prove that to us and to remind us. So we do not follow his lies. We follow the truth of, of Jesus. So, but the problem is it's so easy to, to believe a lie about yourself or about God. And we just need to pray. Every time you crack your Bible, you pray, Holy Spirit, speak your truth to me that I may not believe a lie. A lie about you or a lie about me. And we need to replace the lies that we've believed with the truth of God's word. And that is absolutely the role of the Holy Spirit. So that we don't fall into the lies of Satan. How do you know if you're believing lies about Satan? Well, I've got a list. These are lies and judgments we make. That it's very easy when we follow the world's way to believe the Holy Spirit's job. And I pray right even now that the Holy Spirit would show you where you've believed lies. Like, God loves other people more than he loves me. Lie. I'm not worthy to receive anything from God. That's a lie. I've messed up so badly that I've missed God's best for me. Lie. No one will love me or care about me just for me. Lie. I don't belong. In life, I will always be left out. I will always be alone. Lie. I'm a bad person. If people knew the real me, they would reject me. Lie. My value is in what I do. I am valuable because I do good to others or because I am successful. That's a lie. God doesn't care if I have a secret life as long as I appear to be good. Lie. I'm unattractive. God shortchanged me. Lie. I will always be fill in the blank. I will always be angry or shy, jealous, insecure, fearful. Lie, 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 lie. I will never really change and be as God wants me to be. That's a lie. The correct way to respond if somebody offends me is to punish them by withdrawing or cutting them off. Lie. My value is based totally on others' judgment or perception of me. Lie. I will never be able to fully give or receive love. I don't know what that is. Lie. If I fail to please people, I won't receive their pleasure and acceptance of me. So I've got to try harder. I must do whatever is necessary to try and please people. That is a lie. God has let me down before. He may do it again. I can't trust him. I can't feel secure with him. Lie. Don't get up tomorrow. Don't go about your day. Don't interact with your family or coworkers or any relationships you have. Do not do that in a, with a view that is framed by lies. 
We need, to, we need the Holy Spirit to remind us that those things are lies and to accept the truth that I am loved and accepted and that God is for me and that God died for me and counted me worthy to be his child. Let the truth of God empower us to go about our day. So by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit brings God's work, his word, his truth alive in our hearts. It proves the lies wrong. Jesus has already condemned Satan. Don't fall for those lies. But we need the Holy Spirit to do that for us. So that's, those, that's the three aspects. In regard to sin, in regard to righteousness, in regard to judgments, that the Holy Spirit is proving that the world is wrong and that Jesus is true. Now you might sit here thinking, well, okay, I, I believe that. I believed in Jesus. I believe this creed that we say. I, I've said it, but you still struggle with the lies, or you still struggle understanding the weight of your sinfulness, or you, or the shallowness of your own righteousness. Would you pray for the Holy Spirit to be your guide? Jesus said, this is good that I'm leaving so I can send you this guide, and, and God wants you to have it. Verse 14, look at verse 14, it says, He, this is the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. The word glorify is, is about greatness and weight. The, the Holy Spirit makes the weight of Jesus' words heavy on us. So Jesus said these things, but they, they aren't changing your life, and I still struggle with these other things, because his word isn't heavy enough on me. His truth isn't sunken deep enough on me. And when it does go heavy and deep, it changes us. And that's what God wants for you. Jesus said it like this, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. And he gives this illustration. He said, look, a parent with a child isn't going to give a child a dangerous gift. Even if you're a dope, you could find a good gift to give a child. So Jesus said, you, even though you are an evil, broken, sinful human being, even though you could figure out how to give a good gift to a child, how much more, how much more does God desire to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask it. Luke 11. How much more will a perfect, loving, heavenly Father give this good gift of the Holy Spirit if you would just ask for it? Ask and it will be given to you. So I, here's my encouragement to you. Just pray. Pray, come Holy Spirit. Guide me to the truth. Fill me. Fill me again with your love. Fill me with the knowledge of, of the truth of Jesus. Come and fill me. And you'll have a moment. We're going to, in a little bit, they'll be singing, and you'll just be sitting there, and you can pray that right here this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill me, Holy Spirit. Or maybe after the service, if you want somebody to help you or pray with you through that, come forward and prayer partners. Pray to be filled with the Spirit. Next Sunday night, we're going to gather in the rotunda, and we are just going to pray Come, Holy Spirit, fill us. Help us to know the truth. 
May that truth empower us to be your people. May it fill us with your love. May it set us truly free. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Amen.